I, I want to start off with uh, one one <laughs> anecdote about Marcelo. When I joined Google, um, uh -oh. he and uh, Aaron Kemp, you remember Aaron yes. Kemp, were, were the only two Android developers and they put together the Google Plus app on Android all by themselves within like three to six weeks or something like that. And I go, wow, that can't be done. Well, it, it happened. So I don't know what, what they feed him in Brazil or whatever, <laughs> but he's an amazing uh, in engineer. Um, I, 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 I do want to start with kind of the word. I don't even know how to pronounce it, stalwart. I, I had to look it up when, when Chris suggested it. Um, but it means the three things, uh, reliable, um, and I have to look it up too again, so um, loyal, steady, and completely reliable. So just keep that in mind in the context of when we're talking, because a lot of that the stuff hopefully resonates when it comes to kind of those two, two pillars. Um, and hopefully the questions that, that you know, we have um, uh, that come from Marcelo and I also um, reflect maybe some of your concerns. So let's make it also collaborative. If you have things, just raise your hands and we'll try to make it work. So you want to add anything else before we go? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, it took a little bit longer than that. <laughs> uh, well, all of, just to give you guys some context and I don't have to repeat on every question that I ask, we'll be really focused on what Series A startups, uh, small teams, not yet scaling up. Uh, so I think most of the conversation will be based on that. Uh, and I guess hopefully everything you answer is in that yeah. context. More, more numbers, it's like less than 20 developers, like in series A land, $20 million type. So money is not an issue, but still tight and you still need to make decisions, right? And, uh, and we'll, that's kind of the context and scope. So yeah, we're now starting with real important topics. <laughs> I would love to hear your thoughts on, uh, at that stage of startups on technical leadership versus product leadership. Yeah, I, I, in, in the spirit of like e efficiency and, and focus, the, the driver in, in my view to, to solve problems is to be like really focused and and, and get the expertise that you need. And that expertise has to be uh, across the board with everybody. Um, and since most of the mechanics of a startup is technically driven, you need to be extremely knowledgeable behind uh, the area that you're working in. Um, so I would strongly suggest that you, you look at uh, bringing on board subject matter experts. Um, I'm going to avoid using in this context kind of the product leadership, uh, uh, you know, uh, name so that you get the idea of, of having the SMEs work together, uh, convey the domain expertise and start solving specific problems. Because uh, otherwise, um, if you bring some, some people on board that just don't have that, um, it becomes very unwieldy. So at Ross right now, uh, we're hiring lawyers. Um, uh, we don't have product managers at this point. Um, these are uh, aspirational individuals that love technology but have a law degree. And so we bring them on board so they can, they can help us with our context. So uh, 
So on company, on large companies like Google, for example, there is this uh, model of 70, 20, 10, where 70% of the time should be spent on product development, 20% on infrastructure, and 10% on experimentation. How do you think that applies to startups? I flip it completely on its head. Um, I'm one of the big pillars in, in, in this domain, in this context, is disruption. Um, and you must be disruptive in order to succeed um, so that the numbers would look more like um, 40, 20, 40, or maybe even 20, 20, 60. I, I would urge early on to be on kind of the 60% disruptive model. Uh, figure out polishing at the 20% your product uh, when the right time comes. Um, and then uh, look at the simplicity, uh, hopefully the simplicity of your stack to give you a lot less worry about um, you know, what, what thing you need to clean up from an infrastructure perspective. So think big, uh, don't be afraid of going big. We'll talk about that later as well in yeah. some other context. Um, because you're out there to disrupt the industry, you're not there to, uh, like what um, uh, Paige at uh, Google said, do the toothbrush test. If you do the toothbrush test, it means you're working on the wrong shit. You gotta not uh, you know, brush your teeth. You gotta go big and, and disrupt the industry. Does that make sense? It does. Like, uh, I think it applies a lot to how we have built FAIR so far. Uh, things that we focus a lot, and especially me as CTO, we focus a lot on shipping things very fast. Uh, our teams, like we ship our, we deploy our backend and our frontend code multiple times a day. And with that, what we do for organizing our, uh, all the features we want is like, we always focus on shipping user, like user value, but cutting scope as much as we can to ship things fast and then learn from it as much as we can. And a lot of the features that we launch at this stage are based on intuition. Uh, but by launching it fast, we get a lot of data back and we know if the intuition was right, we should keep enhancing this feature or many times we are wrong, the intuition is wrong, we shut it down very quickly and we waste very little time on it. I think also if you take a look at the, at the time frame that, that you're driving towards, don't think that because you're thinking big that you need like 12, 18 months worth of uh, timeline. You, you can actually get uh, with focused <coughs> developers uh, kind of in that range of 5 to 10, a lot of stuff done in, in a quarter's uh, uh, time. So. Um, Execution is important and, and delivering stuff into prod as fast as possible is, is what's going to make it happen. Uh, changing gears a little bit, how, how do you focus on uh, management at this early stage like, and, and mentorship as well? Yeah, um, I, try, I try not to think about at this context about evaluating everybody from a performance perspective you hear people talk about like uh, you know leveling up and getting at the end of a quarter or six months a rating um, to me the two things that that really drive at this level growth is mentorship uh, we'll talk a little bit about that and um, and peer-to-peer -peer, uh, evaluation so call it 360s um, call it, uh, you know, uh, code reviews that you do, 
um, and, and building out kind of those relationships is, is what I, I feel uh, trumps uh, management in the pure sense and, and build out a, a solid mentorship structure uh, that allows you to grow people uh, effectively. And yeah, on top of that, you were telling me earlier about the 25-50-25 model, right? Yeah. Would you I'd love to hear that again. Yeah, so uh, in the previous uh, company I was at, Shopify, JML had this 25-50-25 uh, um, model, which I've, I've started like uh, since I've learned on how to apply it. Basically, 25% of the time, I'm learning from you. 50% of the time, you're teaching everybody else, and the other 25%, uh, you're learning from me. And, and so you always need to have that breakdown and context to, uh, and, and structure so you're able to compartmentalize when you're mentoring someone, um, how they're able to teach you stuff, how you're able to, how they're able to teach others, um, and then as well, um, how I can influence their careers. Uh, so it works in kind of that, that model extremely well. I've only been able to apply it over the past like couple of years. So it's not that you're going to take your entire organization and say, okay, we're all going to sit and do this right now. So um, you use that kind of golden rule, 80-20. Take the 20% of your folks that, are, that have that potential and apply that model and have an actual plan quarter over quarter that you do these three things all the time. And you'll see magic on the other end when it comes to building trust and, and getting things out the door. That's great. What do you think about that? I, I, it was the first time I heard about it, but it sounds like a, a great model to follow. Like I definitely want to, I want to learn more about how you guys did this. Yeah, hit me up on Twitter or LinkedIn, and I'm happy to kind of talk this through if anyone's interested in setting it up. Cool. Uh, so another thing that uh, is very interesting for me is startups, right? You start and you're always, you have an idea and you're building it. And again, it, eventually you get to this stage of Series A and you have a team and things are working. You have some product market fit. Uh, it's a lot about product, right? Building the product. Uh, when and how does it change to the team? Um, from, my, from my perspective, um, uh, I've been uh, luckily part of uh, a few startups at, at, at the early stage and even some of the initiatives at, at Google, a little less at, at, at Shopify. But uh, um, it starts when you're, uh, when, when you're right there trying to build your, that first experience. Um, investors actually want to understand that the people they have actually are, the, are, are are the good quality, understand the market, and can actually take them to the next level. It's a lot less about um, the, the, the product in the, in the early phases. Once you got market fit and you're in kind of that range of 15 or so developers, then you can start thinking about the product and how you pivot in the industry in different areas to, to you know, capture more, uh, more of the market. But in kind of the current phase where Ross is right now, it's all about the people. Um, and I strongly suggest when you get to this point um, in your careers or you're in this journey, 
uh, you really think hard about who you have with you and who you have around you because um, they will like make or break your big idea. Uh, so making changes are, are difficult. Um, you should feel comfortable making them uh, and, and you know, bring people together that just understand what the problems are and how they help you fix them. Yeah, so, uh, and related to that, like one of the biggest challenges we have as a company right now is scaling up. Like we, we in, as Nabi was saying, we got to a very large business in a very short time, in less than two years. And our team was very small at some point. Well, we got to 30 and 50 people and we were very efficient, very effective with that team. We, we, we managed to take a lot of shortcuts as well because everybody connected so well together. But then we start to go from 50 to 100 and over 100 and uh, it starts to become a challenge to organize people and like move. How do my biggest challenge, and I would love to hear your ideas on here, is like how do you get this team that you have that's very efficient of 30 people and you try to replicate it to scale up uh, uh, the company? Yeah, um, I use, um, um, as you can tell, I'm very numbers driven. I, I don't know, maybe it's my math background. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I use kind of this one to three model. So uh, if, if you put in place your, your mentorship uh, structure, like I said, don't, don't try to boil the ocean. Pick those three people that you can actually mentor. Once you get them to that next level and you get them to like leadership qualities after like six or nine months, then you start hiring the next set of individuals where you can kind of build out your teams. Um, I also feel um, it's, it's important that you, you put in place um, some, some rep replications of process. Um, um, and, and one thing that's worked for me um, is being able to move people in, in teams uh, once they finish something onto something completely new. Uh, having them um, uh, run with the same area for a prolonged period of time introduces probably other things, um, but at the scale that we're, we're talking about, especially if you want to slowly grow, you need to be able to give individuals the ability to learn other parts of the system and, and drive uh, you know, success in other areas. And the other, the other area that I feel is important is to stop worrying about titles because as you grow, everyone starts thinking about who I am and what I do. And it's all about roles and responsibilities that kind of translate into impact. So maybe in the first um, uh, you know, team mandate they have, they do machine learning work. Uh, maybe in the second iteration, they, they build out you know, our servers and APIs for <coughs> external consumption. Um, so I would kind of use those three pil pillars, like one to three ratio to kind of grow leadership. Don't worry about titles and drive like roles and responsibilities. And, and third, um, rotate people across different areas uh, so that they can learn the system better and I think at the end, when you piece it, uh, these things, it really helps you with your mentorship structure and, and building out that model we talked about. Yeah. Uh, also related to that, uh, uh, we, we have this, like, uh, have this idea that uh, uh, when you start a company, 
the most important thing is like that you hire generalists, like people that can wear multiple hats. Like uh, you go work for Google as an engineer, everything is set up for you. you you're given a, a, a description of uh, what you need to build and you're very free to use whatever engineering you want to build that exact UI, for example. But in a startup, you have to go get your own servers, you have to figure a lot of things out, you wear multiple hats, right? When it's starting, and then there is a transition as well, where as it starts to grow, uh, you start to transition from needing only generalists to starting to need more specialists, people that will get and wear one single hat but do that job very well and, and, and in depth. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that and also on, on how do you migrate from like convincing people to what, what we talk a lot at FAIR about is like giving out your Legos, right? Distributing the things that you own to, to other people. Yeah, you, you need, I, I think that's a, a, um, a time in your journey where I've seen it happen when you're around five to 10 developers. That's kind of where uh, you usually hire generalists um, to, to help you get you know your market fit. Um, it's there where you probably have uh, maybe two, maybe three really good engineers that, that you can leverage. And, and that's when you start applying kind of those other models. At the end of the day, you don't want individuals, those three individuals to be kind of the time, every time a question comes up that those three must answer the questions uh, all the time. And so some techniques that, that, that I've used in the past that, that work is, um, give a mandate to these team. These teams make themselves sufficient uh, and autonomous, and feel feel good if they fail and if they fail fast. Those are like really good signals of growth and and learning. Um, so um, if if you're able to you know build that trust with the teams in that context, it it really helps. Uh, you know, at Ross, for example, right now, I, I, I don't remember what you called your little teams when you... Pods. Pods. We call them flights at, at Ross. Um, we use the airplane metaphor, too. And so, um, and so these flights are, are built and, and they rotate every quarter uh, to address different parts of the, of the, of the system. And they're self-sufficient. They have their own their own key objectives, uh, they align to the company goals. Um, and what we try to do is um, it put, put a, what we call a stakeholder in there to help them in the case that they have a, a problem or an issue they want to fix. Um, and we stay out of their, out of their execution path. Um, at the end of the day, they might deliver everything uh, that that we agreed upon, but that's not the the goal. The goal is to is to build that trust that the team can like execute autonomously, and be able to replicate that in the next quarter and the next quarter. So, so based on like the way you described, is assume that you guys use OKRs and you you have like big companies objectives, and that's how you organize the teams as well. Yeah, I, I, some some places do it, some places don't. I. Um, I, I think for the sake of like trying something, we've started with OKRs, mm -hmm. uh, and we only have uh, uh, right now quarter-to-quarter -quarter outlooks. We don't think further than that. Um, when planning the next quarter comes out, it, it might not mean it's a continuation of the previous one because we've, we've learned things that we need to address. And so 
it might be completely different pivots in the in the next quarter. So uh, we we try to keep it in that in that time frame. Yeah, I asked because that's how we have been organizing the comp. I guess like coming from Square, that was a big thing of how things run there. So we started the company. We were four people and we had OKRs, yeah. <laughs> and we have always now that we are scaling up, we are still organized by OKRs, and we have these pods that are completely self-sufficient. They have a product manager, a tech leads. Uh, they have back-end engineers, front-end, data science, and they're really responsible for one objective yep. uh, in the company. Yeah, I think um, uh, in scaling it down, um, you might need to have like multiple people play roles in each one of these flights or pods. Uh, but like you said, um, you have an SME, you have someone who does UX, uh, data for sure, and then um, and then the engineers that are required. So changing gears a little more, uh, what are your thoughts on, on balancing out product speed with quality? Um, I'm in favor at this con at, at this level for velocity. Um, it's kind of the alpha and omega for kind of you know uh, delivering impact. Uh, and, and vi visually showing your customers what you're all about and what you can do. Um, in kind of that model that we talked about, the 70-20-10, that kind of gets flipped on its head. You will always ha find the, uh, the time to polish things, right? Um, and even when you decide what to polish, you should think real carefully if, if that is more valuable than like going out for another big idea. Um, I would err to go out for the next big idea than think of like polishing things um, and delivering them kind of like in a perfect model. Um, so uh, when things are done, we like to get things out quickly, hopefully every day, and not feel uh, bad about it. Your users will get accustomed to it and they'll be actually surprised and happy when they get new functionality that can use and, and leverage. Um, and um, I, I feel as uh, we can talk about scale as well, uh, when you get kind of to those higher echelons of, of uh, adoption, uh, you need to be careful about uh, reading the signals of stability uh, in production. Uh, and those are the ones that hopefully you can um, see early on and plan on how to address and fix. Um, so if anything, I would use that as your criteria of what to fix on the quality side, but in the scope of a startup, I would err strongly on velocity. So I would love to learn more details about, like, with, with that in mind, yes, you want velocity, but like, what does that mean? Do you have code reviews or do you completely ignore that? When do you start doing those? Same with unit tests. Do you have tests in your code when you're a small startup? When do you stop, or when do you start doing that if you don't? Yeah, we had a, we had a good discussion in the fishbowl behind here, and uh, we agreed with Marcelo that um, code reviews are, are imperative. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, what, would, what, you, what you should be doing is doing code reviews uh, by distributing it to many people not picking up the one individual you like or that they, you think they know, but you want to be able to give the opportunity to get f 
feedback on your code from other peers so they get to learn those systems and are able to contribute in, in the future. So keeping that healthy rotation is, is really important. And then automating um, with unit tests uh, as much as possible. Um, feel free to do test-driven development if that's how you would like to start. I think is really important. Um, um, I think Shopify had one of the, the, the best kind of dev acceleration systems in place uh, all, all the way from coding to, to production um, and, and, and driving you know that um, um, pattern of work where you distribute code reviews to your peers and make sure you do unit testing and coverage and automate that is kind of a, a really import, important part of a developer's day. <coughs> Earlier alluded to like some signals of things where you might want to check quality map. Can you give some specifics of what, what are the metrics or the things you're looking at? Yeah. Things that perhaps we could go home and look at tonight. The, th the three things that um, are top of mind for me is, um, you know, system uptime. It's like really easy right now these days to, to, to monitor that. The, the second one is performance. Um, you, you should have a north star of what that looks like for everybody. Um, obviously today everyone expects like tens of milliseconds of response time, but you need to settle on kind of what that is. And on the first one, everyone talks about five nines, three nines, uh, whatever is uh, something that you're comfortable with at any point in time in your journey, I think it needs to be defined. Um, and then the, the third item that we pay close attention to is, is user feedback. It can come in from different perspectives. Uh, you might have an app and you get feedback or get ratings uh, on mobile. Uh, you might have like a user tests that you do that you know drive experiences and, and, um, and, and you get feedback from there. So those would be kind of my, my three signals that I, that I would, would drive like impact. Um, the other thing I think we mentioned with Marcelo, something that's really important um, is, is you do root cause analysis on deployments. In this fast pace, uh, maybe you want to elaborate how, how you yeah, think about this. For sure. Uh, well, just also answering your question, like for, for us, a lot of it, the signals, in the very early days, was all feeling, right? You, you, you start to feel like, okay, there has been too many bugs or... or uh, we, we sit close to customer support and we hear a lot of complaints or more than usual and you start to feel like okay maybe we're moving too fast and quality is dropping but like at some point you have to start being very data driven on those things uh, today we look at a lot of like uh, signals like from customer NPS like if NPS is dropping something is wrong and if we didn't change the product uh, or the, the value propositions of the product most likely it's quality that's dropping uh, from, of course, all the metrics that we have on like support tickets and uh, growth on support tickets. For us, we are marketplace, so we have that on both sides of the marketplace and it's like multiple products. Two, also like uh, monitoring at the, uh, your bug tracking system, like number of bugs that are being generated and fixed and, and things like that. And then we get into, yeah, what we're talking about with like how important I think it is to have post-mortems. 
uh, for everything that goes wrong in a company from the very early moments. And the main reason that, and the way we do it is always like, whatever happened, it might be uh, our website was down for five minutes or uh, there was a bug in production for a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days. Uh, it's not for blaming, but it's always very important to do a full report on it and we are very serious about measuring and uh, taking note of when did that start, wh why did that start, how long was it in production, how many people did it affect, and using some of this data, uh, we can put these issues in buckets of the severity of it. Uh, but the most important thing that always comes out of our post-mortems is uh, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? And we always have action items there which will put some protections in place that this won't happen again and uh, we'll learn from it and hopefully uh, the next one is going to be yeah. uh, less severe. I, I have <laughs> a, a, a very strong opinion about bugs. Um, if it's possible not to worry about bugs at all, um, don't do it. Um, um, if someone screams loud enough, you'll hear it and you'll need to go and fix it. Um, Miring yourself in, in kind of uh, thousands of bugs or hundreds of bugs and triaging them in P3s and P2s, in my view, is a complete waste of time. Um, try to improve your process of code reviewing, unit tests, uh, do your RCAs uh, when things in production go wrong, and, and, and monitor the signals, NPS, user satisfaction, um, your system's uptime and your performance in terms of the experiences with your users um, and just focus on P0 items, that's it. Um, I would not like uh, put yourself in a scenario where you're reviewing bugs every day all the time. Yeah, you have a question? What, what is the stack of your companies like and why did you guys choose it? I'll start. Uh, we're a really simple solution. Um, um, we're in an AWS right now for legacy reasons and uh, we're spilling over into, into Google land um, uh, but at some point in time we'll decide one or the other over the next little while. Um, we are uh, an S3 uh, system uh, that's 100% uh, almost Python driven because of the, of the domain we're in. Uh, we have React uh, on the front end and we use Elasticsearch. Um, that was pro another question further down is try to keep your stacks really simple. Um, in, in choosing mobile, if we'll go, we'll probably go React Native as a, as a simple extension. Um, so that's kind of what our, what our runtime looks like right now. Yeah, for... Uh, um just answering the same question. For our stack, uh, we have a Java and Kotlin backend. Uh, the reason why we chose Java to start <coughs> is because that's where we had the most experience and we knew how to build apps there. We had a very good framework uh, for building Java applications. Uh, and the reason why we're migrating to Kotlin now is mostly because I believe that uh, the language is a language that uh, Google is going to be betting on. and. It's a modern version of Java that's completely interoperable with it. Uh, I think it's going to be very big in the future. Uh, 
with that. So our servers today, we, we didn't start on AWS. Like uh, we started on Heroku, which is a much better and simpler place to start. Much we didn't have to worry about infrastructure at all uh, until we had to worry about infrastructure, and then we moved into AWS with Kubernetes. Uh, and we have a MySQL database, but we also use things like Redis, uh, a lot of things from AWS, like uh, Kinesis, uh, Firehose, and the main thing, which is related to the next question we're gonna ask Sturgis is, uh, we have a giant uh, Redshift database where every data from every part of our company ends up there, and it's used for both data science and uh, analytics. And on the front end, we have a React app. I think the reason why I chose React when we started this because it's the very first uh, web framework that I looked at and uh, I felt like uh, not only it makes sense, but if you ask four different uh, front end engineers to build something in React, they're gonna look very similar. <laughs> the model is very opinionated. Uh, yeah, so that's, I just, that's I just wanted to uh, also, we're on Kubernetes as well. It's I, I live and die by that stuff, and so it's uh, it, it's it's um, an amazing infrastructure to have as part of your deployment process. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just going back to the previous topic on velocity versus quality, right? Uh, do you look at that differently <coughs> depending upon the space that you are operating in, whether you are acting in a B two C space or a B two B space? Because uh, when you are going in a B two B space. Uh, obviously, when you're a little beyond the product market fit, you may not have a marketing dollar infused into your engine, right? So you have handhold of customer you're playing with, right? So there is always the factor of safety boundary layer that you have to play with. Just uh, your... Yeah, uh, so the question was uh, if the velocity versus quality uh, dilemma applies to B to B, B to C, A to B, X to Y, all that mm -hmm. stuff. I, I think you, um, personally, I think you need to just keep it extremely simple, right? The, the more you throw into your day-to-day -day work all these uh, um, pivots and, 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 oh, they're doing a demo today, don't touch the production system. Oh, I need to spin off uh, a, a demo system so that we don't, you know, uh, you know uh, change uh, enterprise customer experiences. Um, I'm, I've been in some of these spaces a few times, um, uh, banking as well as semiconductor and now legal. I, it takes a little bit of time to get people used to it, but I, uh, we just released uh, something big uh, today and uh, um, of course someone came into work and they just didn't read our release notes or wasn't prepped with it and we got an NPS score of 10. Uh, because they were surprised of what functionality we gave them, so you need to you need to build that that trust um, and and cadence, um, and and I think people will be extremely happy with with where where you're going. Just remember how hard it was to get these things going, and now everyone looks at like what when's the next Apple update, and just give it to me tomorrow, and and all that kind of stuff. So I I, I wouldn't worry about it at all. I have a very strong opinions there as well because uh, having worked with Sturgis on Google Plus, which like in two weeks we had 10 million users, <laughs> and then building Square Cash, which again today they have like 30 million active monthly active users or something like that. Uh, 
what matters the most in those B2C uh, environments uh, is, or social networks is like uh, the number of people affected, right? A bug in a, 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 an app like Google Plus or Square Cash that affects 2,000 users, 5,000 users, doesn't matter as much. We're gonna be like, oh, it's only 2,000 people, right? But when it's, once we move into like our business today affair, where uh, our customers like, is like a store, uh, that the LTV for us is very high, uh, a bug that affects five people is a big deal, right? So it's just a very different perspective, and it's also like, uh, it, it does change how you look at quality. You, you have to be way more mindful of little things, and, uh, and that's where like, we get into like, on-call, and like, when should you be on-call, and how often should, when do you start having people on-call? <laughs> I, I think that does bring up a, a good question we can have, a good uh, uh, um, conversation we can have offline in the context yeah. of, of being in this, you know, finding market fit and you're like less than 20 series A, uh, speed is important. Um, transitioning then into a CAC LTV model and building out uh, more momentum and impact, um, I, I, I think I would... I would think you would be fixing um, your processes early on so that you can continue that momentum uh, without needing to deviate. So. Yep. Uh, a little while earlier we were talking about, uh, you mentioned you wanted to make the flights in your company to be like pretty self-sufficient and giving them all the tools to succeed. Uh, I was just wondering, of course, super early on in the company, the you might give them a quarter to go execute by themselves and not bother them, but what they're going to be building really early on is probably coming from yourself or the leadership team. At what scale does that start to change in your opinion or does it make sense to start changing that and it's like, okay, well you teams have been self-sufficient, now it's also like you also get the uh, power to you know, decide what to build next versus the, that coming from the leadership team. Yeah, so that, that's a, the, a really good question. So the, the question is, like, when do you start giving that, that self-sufficient uh, product um, um, allowance to these small teams to do what they think is right versus it coming uh, top-down? So um, early on, I, I think it's, Im it's important to um, uh, give everybody a clear understanding of what your North Star is. And... Once, once you do that and you repeat it in your town halls and you throw it into your, your .com and you put it part of your slogan and taglines, people will start getting the message of what your, your main focus is and, and where you're heading towards. Um, I think uh, if you've hired smart people that like to do problem solving in that space, you probably need maybe two quarters worth of teaching on how to think in that space and then allow them to become more self-sufficient. Uh, you need to calibrate it again when you hire more and you like you know scale your team. Um, but if you have the stability of uh, a couple of quarters of the same, same teams and people, uh, you should be able to get to the bottom up side of things. Um, and then um, evaluate what the team is delivering um, as kind of like a, um, a sounding board uh, thereafter. So at Ross, we're not there yet. We probably need another quarter or so to get into that, into that mode. Um, 
and you know it might differ from places to places but hiring the right people that understand that perspective is is crucial um, and being able to get to that end, end game is really important because uh, what that allows you to do after is think even bigger after that you've got the time to think bigger from there um, early on with startups a lot of times you're talking about moving fast it usually makes sense for a lot of things to use the cheapest fastest solution to get something done so if a customer wants some particular report maybe you email a, a developer get them to run a SQL query and send it back but then over time, it can become emailing the developer becomes the interface for getting this report. And for one thing like that, it's very clear to just build something that does that specific thing. But if you've got one you know, manual process over here, another manual process over there, another thing with taping glue over here, how do you handle a situation where you get to a point where you're scaling to the point where the quick and dirty isn't working anymore? Can you speak to that a little bit? So my favorite answer to that question is no. Uh, uh, so the question is like, how, how, do, you, uh, how do you fulfill kind of uh, incidental asks from the field, from customers, users, um, and like most of the people that deliver those answers are usually the developers in a, in a small startup. Um, so um, like if you're, if you're starting early on and you have a few customers, I, I think you'll work out the model, but when, when you're getting into kind of Series A territory and you're getting market fit and you're, and you're building out uh, a, a focus area and a North Star, I think it's important to, to not uh, disrupt the team um, with these incidental asks. Um, if things start becoming real, real critical, then sure, you can start you know, making the the request to fulfill, uh, you know, that need. Um, so I would, I would err on, on saying a no until like there is time to actually fulfill that feature. Um, and if you really need to, uh, what would be best to do is, is find people that actually can find their way through the system to answer that question that maybe are not developers, right? So the, the, less, the, the most, the jewel of your organization are, are your engineers that are driving product out the door uh, at that time in your journey. So the, the less time you, you, you uh, take from, from them to push code out, the better it is. And if you need um, uh, someone to be able to help out, make sure you hire someone, for example, that's in customer support, that's like tech, tech savvy, is able to kind of uh, find their way through the system, ask one or two questions, and then be able to fulfill the request. Um, and kind of that translates, in, in my view, a little bit about what, what Marcelo said earlier, is that you have to have people that wear uh, more than one hat in the organization. So it's been times, for example, at Ross, we want to find out why this user gave us an NPS score of two uh, and if I want to find out, I don't need to go and ask anyone. I, I, can, I know how to make the query to actually get that data out of the system. And maybe I post this in a Slack channel so the next person can use it too. I don't know if that gives you a, a, a little bit of the model that I'm thinking. A little bit. I, I, have, uh, I have some opinions there too that I would love to hear your thoughts on my opinions there. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
So, uh, and, and this like goes back to like, we hear this a lot, but like at startups, you should do things that don't scale first, right? Yeah, so like you might claim that we shouldn't allow those things to happen, but like when the CEO goes there and tells the developer like, you gotta get this thing done, they'll get it done. Uh, so for me, the most like one of the most important skills at the startup, uh, at the, the leadership at the startup is prioritizing, like deciding what's the most important thing to do next and when to do it. Everything feels like a priority. You start, you don't have anything. You have to build your product. You have to figure out product market fit. You have a million things to, to, to implement. Every, if you talk to five customers, you're going to hear a lot of things that will feel like they're urgent, but you have another million customers there that might have a different opinion, right? So picking the right things is what makes companies succeed uh, out of everything that's a priority. And you have to do a lot of things that don't scale. Uh, but then there is, I think, which might be related to what you asked, which is when do you automate that, right? You can't just keep doing things that don't scale. But I, I would say, like, yes, you, eventually you're going to have to do one thing that uh, is a manual process and it takes a lot of time and you're going to use one of your precious engineers to do it and you're going to do it twice. And once he starts doing this three times a week, you're going to be like, okay, this is, it's time to build something around it or something is broken here, right? Uh, so it's, again, it's a very hard thing to answer, but prioritizing doing the right thing at the right time is, is one of the hardest things to, to do. Gabriel? So since you're talking about priorities, you both talked about OKRs, which is not surprising since you both come from Google. Uh, I've been super curious to know what kind of OKRs you use right now. If you guys can give us some examples of what you use in your companies and how well you can actually stick to those OKRs and when have you changed or why did you decide to actually cancel an OKR mid-cycle? The question was, uh, since we come from Google, we've used OKRs. Um, what, what is the, uh, the structure of the OKR and when did you, you know, start potentially changing a, an OKR? Um, so um, I'll give you a flavor of, of, of kind of what we're working on right now. So we have a North Star that's called like how many searches a, a user does successfully a day with a system. Um, that means we need to define what a session is. And so we're able to capture uh, every day when they're logged in, how many successful searches they've done. And so we want to increase that 200% uh, from beginning of the quarter in Q1 to uh, Q2 to the end of Q2. Um, another one is uh, something that to do with ARR and MRR or CAC versus LTV, our cost of acquisition um, uh, type of measurements. Those are very specific. Um, and they're um, you know, available in a very measurable way to the entire organization. Um, when, you, when you put these in place and, and you, you know, peel the onion and come up with your goals, um, um, I've learned you got to stick with them uh, for the remainder of the quarter. And the reason why you, why you stick with them is because um, you've, you've learned from your previous data gathering and quarters that those are the next most important things to do. And until you put them in place and start measuring how effective you are, uh, you can't like, start eliminating them for, for something else. Um, the one, the one um, you know, uh, oddity out of kind of maybe 
putting something else in is if a higher priority in the organization comes. It doesn't mean that you're taking w one of the KRs uh, and, and not doing them now. It's just that you're deprioritizing it in favor of something that surface that's really critical. Um, so I, I try to stick away from like changing OKRs midstream unless something really urgent and critical. Um, and again, the assumption is that you've done your homework with all the data that you've gathered beforehand to build out that, that good plan for the next quarter. I don't know how you think. I'll, I'll just tell you guys a little bit about our history of OKRs. It's not just from Google, but also we, we got a lot of it from Square. We, we really use those uh, OKRs at Square to drive everything. Uh, so we started the company, we were four people, and we had OKRs. Like, you know, our OKRs were like two months long, so it's like this is what we, are, we want to accomplish uh, in the next two months. And they were very focused and like two, three, sometimes four things that were the biggest goals, always having some North Stars uh, that were driving that. And uh, we, we were fortunate enough to have a very strong board of directors even when we started the company. So uh, the way we run the company for the first two years was with uh, bi-monthly OKRs. Uh, so we would set those goals. We would work like madman towards changing those numbers. Two months later, we would uh, like six weeks in, we would have shipped a lot of stuff, and we, for the last two weeks, we would be gathering results. We would go back to our board, uh, show them what we did, and we would already have an idea of what we wanted to do next. We would talk about it at the board meeting, get very clear direction as to what's the next important things for us to figure out. We'd go back, make those OKRs for the next two months, and we did that for two years, and that's how we got to move so fast as well. Uh, it was very guided. Uh, and then this year, uh, this is our third year since January, so this year is the first time we start to do uh, quarterly OKRs, so we extended them off because things started to get a little bit uh, uh, harder. And now, like since two quarters ago, we started to uh, do OKRs not only for the whole company, right? not only on the goals, the global goals of the business, but also ever smaller team like engineering and sales and everybody else also has their own OKRs. And that's how we have been doing it. And to give you some examples of our OKRs this quarter, uh, we have figured out that we have amazing product market fit. Our customers love what we're doing on both sides of our marketplace. So we have one OKR on making it even better for makers on our platform. We want them to like have no reason to ever leave it. So a lot of the features we're building towards that OKR are like getting makers faster and keeping them in. And we have the same OKR on the retail, on the other side of the marketplace, on retailer. And then we have an OKR on employee. Like we want to, to build a world-class team and we have OKRs around what does it take for us? What, what are we missing to, to make that happen? How much more time do we have? Five, 10 minutes? Maybe a few more questions. Any other questions from the audience? Uh, did you talk about uh, getting a few people and getting them up to like leadership quality? Like, uh, what does that mean to you? Like, what are the attributes that you look for in, in a good leader? So the question is, uh, what what are the attributes uh, for uh, for a good leader? Um, 
I, again, I'll talk about it in the context of kind of that Series A, like you've got like 10 to, to, 20, to 20 developers. Um, I, I'm looking at someone that can actually think big, um, understand what our North Star is and find out how to actually get there is, is really important. Um, number two, under, understand how to actually get uh, shit done fast. Um, not necessarily always cutting quarters, but picking simple things, um, uh, being a aware of a lot of options that are out there, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, buying versus building ty type of mentality. And the third thing is, is mentorship um, and how to, how to be able to uh, communicate what a good technical design is, what are kind of the pivots someone needs to make to be more uh, e effective in writing code. Um, th those to me like, are, are the fundamentals that, that drive kind of my thinking. Any other questions? Yep. Um, you do one-on-ones with your team weekly. If you do, how, how do you structure them? What do you talk about? Yeah, so the question is, do we do one on, uh, do I do, or Marcelo does one on one, uh, how often and how they're structured? Um, depending on the size of the team, um, uh, you want to keep in touch as frequently as possible, but not litter someone's calendar with meetings. Everyone just doesn't like that stuff. Um, so I, I, I try, right now, I, I meet everyone once every three weeks. Um, for a half an hour. Um, the structure is, is pretty focused on your growth. It has nothing to do with what you're doing today or what you delivered kind of yesterday. And so um, um, I've, in, an, in a very informal way, um, the, the material that we looked at is kind of categorized in three, uh, uh, what, what are the big items that you're working on? Um, two, um, what are these uh, health, code health infrastructure items that you're passionate about that you want to fix? Um, and then what are your personal aspirations, right? So um, are, are, you, are you going to meetups? Are you, do you have a mentor outside of work? Um, uh, have you participated in conferences? Have you written a blog? Um, you know, those things that are really important about building your, your personal uh, identity in our space. Um, and so uh, that's kind of what we look at and, and get an assessment of, of where things are at. I, I don't know if that helps you a bit. So. Yeah, I have. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I have always done one-on-ones with everybody on my team, but uh, recently, like last month, I had like 35 people reporting to me. So it, I started to like move it from weekly to bi-weekly to three weeks to monthly. And now, of course, I hired the head of engineering and uh, we are transitioning a lot of the management, but I find them very useful and important. And I think the way I try to structure them is like, I use them to get feedback on the company and on myself, of course. A little bit of it for that. Most of it is like feedback on what can we do better, what are we doing well, and what's the person doing well, and what do they want for the future. Like it's like uh, uh, it's good to to get in and out with 
uh, action items. So you know action items from your previous one and like see where what happened and where you are at and, and then come up with new action items for the future as well. Uh, and you get to, to learn a lot about where people want to be uh, and you can help guide that. Mary. What's the work-life balance like on your teams and do you do anything to prevent burnout when so the question is, what's the work-life balance on our teams and how do you prevent burnout? Um, so um, right, right now, it's kind of hard for me to answer that question in its current context, but how would I vi visualize it? Um, I, I think it's important that uh, developers work on things that they're passionate about. And so you need to make sure that you find that for them or help help find that for them. So that's kind of really important. Number two, I also think it's critical that if a developer has a, an opinion about um, a stack option or some infrastructure changes, that we, we allow them to express those opinions, come up with options and figure out where, where, where they go. Um, I, I think that's kind of like my, my mental view on um, um, the, the work side of the, of the fence. Um, I think on the, on the more like, you know, life at where you're, where you're at, it really depends on your culture. Um, and so spending time defining what that is, is, is important. So, you know, things like working hours make a difference. Uh, you know, vacation time is, is important. Um, being able to have outings with your team, um, not, not that everyone's going to be your pal all the time, everywhere you go, but uh, having, having an established culture in the organization, I, I think, is, is really, really critical. Um, and sometimes when, you know, someone comes to the table and says, you know, we weren't able to get this thing done today, uh, hopefully everything that we talked about it doesn't come as a surprise um, and so you give that extra time for people to get what they need done properly versus saying oh you got to work on the weekend or you got to spend your day here to get it done so I, I think being able to see eye to eye on status and 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 having like a, a level setting there is is important yeah I agree uh, so for us again we're a little bit over two years now. The first year was insane. Like there was no such thing as life. There was only the work. <laughs> we started at 7 a.m. and we finished. We, we couldn't do anything anymore. And we did that seven days per week for the first seven months. Then we cut off Sundays. So we kept doing that until the end of the year, uh, six days a week. The second year, we cut off Saturdays. So, and then we started at 8 a.m. as well. So like start to improve. And I think after six months, we got into like a much well, more well-balanced work-life uh, situation. Where we are today is like uh, we have built like a company that like we see a very long-term future for the company. We have a huge market, and uh, we are not rushing against anything. It's it's our passion really. Like we're rushing against shipping more things faster, uh, and like I think. Today, our team works, like most people are in the office between 9 and 10 a.m. and very few people are in the office after 6 p.m. So it, I think 
we as a company understand that we are in this for the long run and there's nothing like that's going to help by working way harder. Uh, but that being said, people are still very passionate and some people will go home and do more work. I do a lot of that. Uh, but it's not like a, a, a mandatory thing or anything. It's people do it because they want to do it. We have to tell them to stop sometimes. <laughs> Just on that note, like, uh, do you feel that it's uh, necessary to like sprint like that in the very early days, like uh, working around the clock, or do you think that like sustainable is an option when you're just getting started? I I, I think you can work in in uh, in sprints in that mode. Um, um, I I haven't been involved in sure, yeah, like seven enough. days a week uh, <laughs> for like a year, but. Uh, you know, doing it for uh, like a couple of months to get a, a, a big ticket item out, it, a, absolutely. Uh, um, I th to Marcelo's point, we've also at Ross just hit that pivot where, you know, we've we've relooked at our, our working hours again and get an understanding that at some point we will have to kind of bid the, uh, you know, burn the midnight oil uh, type of thing. Um, uh, but it, it, it really also depends on the people that you hire right and 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 how how aligned they are with with how you want to run things um but i've been part of kind of we have like a big ticket item to go out it might take a couple of months and you know we'll recalibrate from there um so yeah so it is it is it is normal to to kind of see that in in this ecosystem i think one thing that uh, uh triggered us to start like that was that we joined y combinator and we had nothing. We joined, we told them an idea and they accepted us based on our history. And there were a lot of companies there that were doing things for a year or two or three and they joined to really scale up. And we started to look at it and be like, okay, three months from now we have to do demo day and we have to present in front of 2,000 investors and we have to show something. <laughs> so so we, th during those three months we worked like that. and. I mean, we got to the end, we raised money before we finished by Combinator, and we saw the momentum, and we, like, we had so much to build that we couldn't stop. We just wanted to see it out. And at the same time, like, I think we all had this mentality that we do not want to be building a company that like, in five years from now, we're gonna be like, swimming against the flow and we don't know where we are. We want to like, either make something that's gonna be very big or fail fast. Uh, so made a lot of sense for us to do that in the early days until we got to like Series A and then Series B and eventually. Uh, Our Combinator feels like a really rare opportunity and you have like a uh, light at the end of the tunnel. You know it's going to be a few months and then yeah, yeah. you can recalibrate that. I put a lot of thought into like the gifts uh, because I, gifts. I really wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, uh, it resonated. Can, can you cut the live stream so I can <laughs> make, fun of make, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> make fun of me at will on the live stream? I don't care. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously. Um, so I know that you guys both love football, and uh, you know. You mean uh, soccer? That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> um, and I and I know both of you love food, so um, there's uh, some special edition uh, bottles of uh, Toronto FC uh, kind of limited edition uh, red wine in here. Oh, wow. um, it's the 2017 uh, edition with the year that they won the MLS. 
Um, it's actually produced in California, which is so <laughs> fitting for Terminal. Um, and then I, I got you one also, the same bottle, but then also one from Spain, and uh, I got one from, uh, from Greece. In these brown bags, there's a plethora of cheeses also from Spain and Greece. And, um, and of course, uh, you know, your tagline at your company is the future is local. But there's also some That's black good. market hummus in here. That's if you don't know what black market hummus is, it's uh, not for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and so thanks so much, Sergio. Oh, this is for you. Thanks.